0: that, but, um, but we are going to be looking at a Greek word today, we've not done this in quite some time, and um, but we're going to maybe do it from a little bit of a different perspective. The Greek word that we're going to be looking at is at the top of your sheet, the top left corner of your sheet, anacafaleolo, and this is a, actually when you look at the original word, it is 19 letters there's a few variations of this word, um, but uh, um, the, this this A-N-A-K-E-P-H-A-L-A-I-O-O, this is a monster word, um, and um, anakathaleo is this word um, that is used by Paul, it's only used twice in the Bible, and I came across this the other day when I was studying for something else, and I just kind of felt, maybe you would say drawn to it. Um, so today we're going to be continuing our study on what we call the third way. In fact, if some of you remember last, uh, two weeks ago, I guess it would be, we spoke about the Jesus way, which is the third way. Um, this third way is, as we said, a way that lives in attachment and detachment. So the third way of Jesus is a non-dualistic challenges we have in our society is we view everything in dualistic perspective, meaning there is right, there is wrong, there is Christian, there is unsaved, there is whatever it is. Some dualistic view is good. Dualistic view is what got you here today. You had to determine am I going to turn left or right, right? So that got you here, and there's value to that. But the problem is when dualism begins to affect how we see things and we don't understand both we don't understand oftentimes how to have understanding and mystery so we want just understanding but we don't we don't like this stuff we don't get we don't um, maybe want to uh, recognize that we need to be people that are educated and that study and that look at the scriptures but we also need to have experience and we also need to have these encounters with him um, and so that's what dualism does and attachment and deep is something that's very basic within dualistic uh, um, uh, viewpoint. We need to be detached or have detachment from the egocentric way of control and fear and an attachment to the way of love that will undoubtedly bring fear and cause us to lose control. Here's, Here's my point. So we have to detach from ego. And and to detach from ego, we have to detach and be able to process overcoming fear. The challenge is, though, when we attach ourselves to love, undoubtedly that's going to bring fear because it's going to force you to surrender and force you to obey and force you to be obedient, which undoubtedly is going to cause you to encounter what? Fear. Have you ever done anything that was new or different and not been somewhat, Nervous or afraid or anxious about it. It's just, just the reality. And that's why the Bible says perfect love casts out fear or overcomes it. It never says perfect love prevents it. Perfect love doesn't keep you from fear. Perfect love is the antidote. Perfect love is the thing that allows you to go through it. So we have to live in attachment and detachment. A third way that knows that the need for solitude and, and contemplation also is able to embrace community and engagement. See, in our culture, you've got one or the other. You've got people who, they're just solo. They're all about the solitudes, them and Jesus in the wilderness. And and they don't know how to be in community, and yet then you've got these other people who, they don't know how to be alone. They don't know how to have contemplative time, where they can actually just slow down. The both is non-dualistic viewpoint, being not one or the other. The one that fights off the desire to isolate when in pain, yet knows the need for a healthy introspection and meditation on his word. Both. When you're in pain, you don't isolate. But also knows the time that you, it is healthy to have introspection. It is healthy to have contemplative meditation. That Finds the middle road between fight or flight, that you don't have to be fight or flight, but find the middle road that knows how to walk in that tension. It is the way that stands to violently bring the kingdom, as Jesus said, but also walk as the blessed peacemaker that is called the child of God. This is the third way of Jesus. I'd like to start this morning with a story. So what prompted this message the other day was I had a meeting in Indianapolis with my boss, who owns the dental firm that I work for, and also our one of our um, um, representatives, kind of a, a consultant that we use. Um, and we got to talk, and this consultant uh, lives in Baltimore but has a cabin in West Virginia, and his wife is very active with farms and all kinds of stuff like that, and uh, horses. And so we sometimes will talk about kind of that stuff because he really enjoys that. So he was asking me about animals that we had. And without even really thinking about it, I started telling him about Bob the Llama. Now, I'll make this story short for those of you who have heard it. uh, But I start, without even thinking that it would be an entertaining story, just start telling him about Tosh and I, um, when we got married, um, uh, about a year after we got married, we put a house in out at our family farm. So there's 80 acres there. Um, There had been cows, but it had been about 10 years that there had been cows, um, so there hadn't been any animals or livestock out there for quite some time. And um, we decided at the, at the ripe age of 19, with no idea what we were doing, that we needed to have a horse. Um, it makes perfect sense. We live on a farm. We need a horse. And um, I, I got really excited because somebody at the church that we attended had a horse for sale. And amazingly, the horse was only 100 $100. Now, this should have been a clue that there was a problem. When a horse is $100, that might be a red flag. Um, dog food is more than $100. Um, but, you know, whatever. I, we were all excited. We didn't. I, I tell my dad, and my dad says, says there is no way. And I, he may have used some um, adjectives to describe there's no way. Uh, uh, some colorful language, but he said, there's no way. We don't, we don't have a way to keep the horse in. We don't have anywhere to put it. We don't know what we're doing. We've never had horses. What are we going to do? And I said, well, I've already paid him, and we're supposed to go get it today. And the guy was moving away from the farm, and so he, that's one of the reasons he had to sell the horse kind of quickly. And so I said, we've got to go sell this now. Or, uh, pick this up now. He's got to sell this horse now. We have to go get it right now so we get uh my friend comes over we get the um, um the trailer hooked up go pick up the horse the horse's name is racer racer is absolutely wild um racer has never been ridden in his life um racer doesn't really like people um and uh he would rather kick you than look at you um and but it's still, we're still fine like i'm all, like okay well i can figure out how to do that i've seen uh, the man from Snowy River, so clearly I know how to how to ride a horse, right? Uh, I've seen, like, I can, you know, I, there's YouTubes, you whisper to them and then they do what you want. Um, and so we get the horse in the trailer, finally, and about this time, I said, alright, well, we're going to get going. He said, no, 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 and he comes walking around with what I can only describe to you, it looks like the biggest black sheep i've ever seen except his fur looked like he was rastafarian it was apparently a llama i never i never really interacted with a llama before so i didn't know i said what is that he said this is bob i said well that wasn't my question but it's nice to meet you bob why is he coming towards my trailer and he said well he comes with the horse i said no he doesn't he said yes he does He comes with the horse. And so apparently Bob and Racer had grown up together. They were all they had never known. In fact, Bob thought he was a horse. Um, And Bob, because he's a llama that somehow they inherited, that they I think they came uh, came to him by way much similar as we, uh, they didn't know what they were doing. He had never been um, uh, shaved or sheared at all. And so all of his was matted together and hanging off of, I mean, it, there was straw coming out everywhere. I mean, he looked worse than Jonah after a few days in the belly of the whale. Um, and so as he would walk, like all of his fur would just kind of like move as one because it was just together. So I'm thinking like, well, can't do anything now. So we put Bob in the trailer, get to the farm. My dad has been there trying to get a fence area that's just enough to keep Bob, or excuse me, to keep the horse keep the horse in check. Um, I, I get out the horse, take him, put him in, and I walk back to the trailer, and my dad kind of has this feeling of like, okay, all right, we're okay, and I come walking up with Bob, and my dad says, what in the, um, is that? And I said, well, this is Bob. Why is he here? And I said, "Well, he and Racer are brothers, from other mothers. Clearly, but uh, they're they're a package deal. So it ended up being this whole thing. And it uh, we had Bob for several years. Um, we had no idea what to do. I still don't think we ever shaved him because we couldn't figure out how to shave him. So he just kind of lived as this Rastafarian llama, uh, as it was." So as we got more horses my cousin put horses out there he would run with the horses and um, and one of the funniest things I've ever seen was um, there was one day my cousin brought he had uh, like seven other horses and so we start he only could put two in the trailer at a time so we would bring two over and then two over every time we'd show up with more horses Bob's eyes would get bigger and bigger and he just is like they're multiplying where are they coming from and why are they here and so the horses would run around because that's what you do when you when Horses come into a pasture. They run around to figure out the, the lay of the land. Well, it, they would all go running by, and then here would go Bob behind them. And and my dad came up with this really good thing. He said, you know, it's almost like you can hear his thoughts as he's running. Look like a horse. Look like a horse. Look like a horse. Look like a horse. And But that was the existence. And you always knew when the horses were being mean to Bob the llama because you'd go up there, and they would have this big loogie hanging from their face um, because llamas do spit, and it's a real deal, and it's not pleasant. Um, and so they would bite Bob and kick Bob and then he would spit back and they would leave him alone for quite a little while. Um, but I'm telling this story to, to these guys and they're, and he's cracking up, especially the, um, the, the, the rep that we have, he's just laughing. He's like, you've got to tell that story. And I, and I, and it, I mean, this, it was horrible. I mean, the whole thing was it, we had no idea what we were doing. It was like, I would get up, I have to get up multiple times in the middle of the night to go check on him because they would get out the church up the street would regularly call that he was in their parking lot and so they would call and say come get your llama he's chasing the children um i mean it was just craziness absolute craziness the horses would get out and we'd try to get them back in and we didn't know what we were doing and then bob is is doing his own thing it's it's just craziness but as i'm telling the story um i i realize something that you find in this greek word and that's what we're going to talk about today is our story so ephesians chapter one the first uh, passage you have on your sheet um, and i've given you this passage in the passion translation and then we're going to look at it in the niv and the king james as well but let's read this in the passion translation quickly dear friends my name is paul what my Love that he starts that way and just says like, hey, this is who I am because it's a reminder that this is a letter. This wasn't Paul sitting down with his pen and then all of a sudden God took over his body and wrote this, wrote Ephesians. He's writing a letter to people, his friends. He says, I was chosen by God to be an apostle of Jesus, the Messiah. I'm writing this letter to all the devoted believers who have been uh, made holy by being one The heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ Release grace over you and impart total well-being into your lives Our sonship and the Father's plan Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm Has already been lavished upon us As a love gift from our wonderful heavenly Father The Father of our Lord Jesus All because he sees us wrapped up in Christ This is why we celebrate him in our hearts And he chooses us to be his very own Joining us to himself before he laid the foundation of the universe. Because of his great love. He ordained us. So that we would be seen as holy in his eyes. With an unstained innocence. For it was always his perfect plan. To adopt us as his delightful children. Through our union with Jesus. The anointed one. So that his tremendous love. That cascades over us. Would glorify his grace. For the same love he has. For his beloved one Jesus. He also has for us. And this unfolding plan. Brings him great pleasure. Since now we are joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood, the total cancellation of our sins, all because of the cascading riches of his grace. I love that. The cascading riches of his grace. It's just good. The superabundant grace, not just grace, not just abundant grace, superabundant grace, is already powerfully working in us, releasing within us all forms of wisdom and practical understanding and through the revelation of the anointed one he unveiled his secret desires for us the hidden mystery of his long range plan which he was delighted to implement from the very beginning of time and because of God's unfailing purpose this detailed plan will reign supreme through every period of time until the fulfillment of all the ages reaches its climax when God makes all things new in heaven and earth through Jesus through the union with Christ we too have been claimed by God as his inheritance before we were even our destiny that we would fulfill the plan of god who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in his heart that is a run-on paragraph if i've ever seen it to start a letter but man is it good man is it good so that's how paul is writing a letter to his friends and he starts with this run-on paragraph about how lavish and how if i can use this word reckless in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavish on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and in earth under Christ so the thing that's interesting is the language that Paul uses he's using a very very Provocative language as he speaks of the gift that's freely given, meaning that what he's saying to us is the only thing it requires for us to experience this gift is our awareness. See, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day who's a pastor, and I really liked what uh, one of the things he was telling me is he said he no longer says save. He doesn't really use that language much anymore to ask somebody, are you saved? When did you get saved? What the language he uses is when I became aware. Because it's much more about us stepping into what God has given than it is us getting a golden ticket. I was I got saved. So now I'm in, you know, because we would turn to people and we, are you saved, brother? And what we really mean when we ask that question is, are you going to go to heaven? Which is a really horrible question. Especially when Jesus never talked about going to heaven. Jesus talked about welcoming heaven to earth. Jesus talked about how do we live in the riches of what God's afforded. So the whole concept of what Paul's conveying is absolutely unique. This awakening, the awakening to this divine flow, this restorative work that realigns us to what we really are. This is the work of Christ. And we must understand that Paul is talking about what New Testament scholars now call the cosmic Christ. This is a a really unique. We don't have time to go into it. But most agree that this is what the Pauline letters mean when they speak of the mystery of Christ. We don't have time to explore this concept as deeply. But suffice to say that Paul is not just talking about the Jewish rabbi that was born in Galilee, came from Nazareth, walked the earth in sandals died on the cross and rose from the grave he's talking about jesus as the revealing of something that has always been at work that's the cosmic christ you see the problem is a lot of us are taught to accept jesus but we're not taught to understand christ is because we have the ability to imagine Jesus in physical form and in most cases we imagine him in whatever physical form closely resembles us so Jesus in the American church is an American businessman that's how we think about Jesus that's why church in America became a business and a corporation not a community because our leader is a businessman who runs a corporation and so if you're late to work you get fired or written up we serve, we say things like God wants to use you. It's all about a, a work-type, business-type language, not relationship and community. And so what the cosmic Christ speaks of, which I actually heard somebody say the other day, this is a really interesting thing. They actually said that the re, uh, that us finding Jesus or interpreting Jesus through the eyes um, of an American businessman, because they've said as they traveled the country, in, in Germany, Jesus is a policeman. Switzerland, Jesus is a banker. It's societal, the way they interpret it, the way they see God, the way they see Jesus. And they said in America, he's, he's a businessman, which is why for years what we said we needed as a leader of our country wasn't a politician, but a what? Businessman. Jesus that walked the earth and wore the sandals and washed his disciples feet, but the Jesus, the cosmic Christ, John references this when he talks about in the beginning, in the prologue, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. That's the cosmic Christ. That's the one that makes everything all in all. It's the Christ that has always been and will always be. It's the energy and the power and the authority and the anointing that holds everything together. Colossians references this two times, Romans references this three times, Ephesians references this twice, and Hebrews references this once, and we don't reference it ever. For most people, their understanding is that Jesus was inserted late in the game. For most of us, the storyline is this. The whole place got really messed up because we're not very good at being stewards of what we're given responsibility over. And so God looked down and said, what am I going to do with these kids? They've made a mess of everything. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. The whole place got really messed up. They've made a total mess. And he says, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll send Jesus. Jesus was the solution to the problem. As if God was surprised by the problem. plan so what did jesus come for jesus came to show us who god really is jesus was the demonstration i'm not saying that jesus didn't come to redeem us clearly that's the fact but what i'm saying is we think that jesus is a reaction by god jesus is not a reaction by god jesus is the demonstration of christ that's always been since the foundation demonstration of the power that holds the whole thing together in the first place. This is what Paul is communicating. So when the early Christians talk about Jesus, they actually talk about Christ and they're not talking about the solution that God came up with at the last minute to try to fix our mess and allows us to go to heaven when we die. They're actually talking about a force, a love, a movement that has been present within creation since the beginning. That's the Christ. first century, this man named Jesus demonstrated that power, that love in earthly form as our Messiah and Savior to demonstrate to humanity. And subsequently, Christ has been there all along. So what is God up to and what is God doing to move us forward and imparting to us the necessary elements so that we might be fully alive? This is exactly what Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians when he says, what is it he's praying that God would do? That God would release grace over us and impart into us total well-being. The goal of Christ is to make you fully alive. Fully alive now. That's the point. So we say that, that you know it's all about us just dying to ourselves and not having a good life. Now, that's actually not true. It's just blatantly not true. In fact, so one of the earliest Saint Gregory of Nyssa just flat, uh, simply said it this way: "The glory of God is man fully alive." That's the glory of God demonstrated. So, this word that we find is in the um, in the King James, um, and you find it as well in the NIV as to bring to unity or to gather as one in the King James in this passage. Um, this Anakephaleo is this Greek word that they found, a 19-letter in the original, to put together and come up with this phrase, to bring it all together. This term actually means to gather together as one, to sum up. Anikephalousisteiae um, is the actual original word, nice and long. If you And I'm sure that Pastor Bill can say it better than I can, but I'm just butchering my way through it. I need to brush up on it because we're going to be there in a week, but I've, but that's the best Greek I've got today. Um, this word is a compound from "ana" A-N-A, which is how you add intensive energy to a word, and "kaphala," which means to add or to bring something to a head, to add a different phrasing to it. It's also been used as a mathematical term. Here's an example I heard once used with this word. If I asked you what is 650 divided by 2, Minus 285 divided by 2 plus 1, you'd say, well, that's easy. That's 21. You already had that, right? I just and I that mathematical problem. The sum of it is all of those parts together as one. You've got this piece and this piece and this piece and this piece and this piece. And this piece but the sum is 21. That's what Paul when he talks about God bringing all things together. 21 is the number that summed up all of that math. Even though there was various types of math that happened in that equation, 21 summed it all up. It brings it all to unity and causes all the other numbers to make sense. So this is the the thing. It also is a term that means to retell something, like you would retell a story. And the the story I told you earlier about Bob the Lama. here's the thing. If, what was the best part of that story was the best part of that story that everything worked out great and that and that i figured out how to ride and breed llamas and that everything was perfect and it wasn't hard or was what made the story pop that it was hard so let me let me ask you this has anybody do you have a bad camping story or a bad fishing story or a bad moving story or a bad vacation story Stories happen when you recount them. What are the parts that always get the best reaction from the crowd when you're sitting around at family dinner at Christmas or Thanksgiving or when you all get together or you're talking with your friends and you're having a glass of Welch's and you're and you're talking about, you know, whatever it is that's going on and you're telling these stories. What are the parts that bring everybody together? It's the parts where you went camping and you thought it was going to be perfect weather and it was 103 but somehow we also had a hurricane. And so your tent your tent fell down and they are imagining your your you know hair matted to your face and then you know animals came and ate all the food and so you slept in your car and all of that stuff is what makes the story great. At that moment didn't feel like it, you're not thinking, you know, this is going to be a great story. You're thinking like, how many cuss words can I fit in a sentence? How many, how many, can I make this word into an adjective, a noun, and a verb all in When you sit around and tell stories when your family gets together. I was noticing this when we when we were at the hospital with Doug and Linda and the Smaltz family. We were telling stories for hours, and none of them were good stories. None of them were stories. I mean, imagine if you sat down at the family table, and somebody says to you, oh, I've got this great story. So I went the other day to do this, this um, rock climbing thing, and I was the best at it. Like, first time I'd ever tried it, everything went great, and I was the best at it. So they put me on a harder wall, and I was the best at that teach rock climbing you were bored just then when i said that why were you bored because nobody wants to hear a story about how somebody didn't have a hard time what inspires you overcoming what inspires us is hearing i did and went through this junk and yet i'm still here and i'm okay This horrible thing and the thing that causes us to laugh together and to enjoy that stuff and why we can all sit around and, and tell stories about how uh, we went to a family reunion and one of our cousins asked us on a date or how we can ask uh, tell stories about how, um, you know, we had these horrible things happen. We missed the flight, you know, we were trying to get somewhere and this thing happened or how we <laughs> or we went fishing and somebody hit us in the head with a bobber and knocked us out of the boat and fell in the water and, you know, whatever, story is that's what makes it pop is the hard stuff but we're still here yeah i tried to not go too far because i figured we might just lose the crowd if I tell too many stories so when somebody tells you a story that there's just no problem there's no difficulty there's no challenge nobody wants Or remember the Titans over and over and over again. (laughs) Because we like that difficulty. It's inspiring. I don't know. Maybe we don't. He can have my spot, Coach. Look, I still cry every time I watch Rudy. And I'm not ashamed of it. When it gets to that scene where they're laying the jerseys down on the coach's desk, I'm weeping like a baby. And I've seen it a hundred times. Are the stories we tell. And as we're telling these stories, we're looking back on these events, and now when we're telling them, we're anti castavailing them. We're summing them up. We're telling our life, but we're doing it, we put a different head on it. The head we put on it now, the summing up of that equation is. But as time passes, see, the only difference between that moment and now with that story is time. You do realize that? The only only additional quotient between that moment and now is time. And so as time passes, our perspective changes. And, And we think about that kind of thing, and that becomes the beauty of it. The stuff that all seemed disjoined and haphazard all comes together to sum up one thing. So as we look back at our lives, as we look back at every single day, whatever we went through this week, at that moment, it was hell. But that's part of the story. And that's part of the beauty. That's how God does things. So when Paul is talking here, what Paul actually says is what makes God so unique. been making beauty from messes since the beginning and that's the journey and as we retell these stories we don't leave out the hard parts I'm not saying that all of a sudden now when I tell the story about Baba Lama that I think oh man that was easy no it was horrible like it was super hard I'm not I'm not minimizing that at all we tell our stories about you know whatever it is that might have happened the air conditioning went out in the middle of August two winters in our house with kerosene heaters. Now it's ridiculous to think about. But it was super hard and dangerous and dumb. But that's just what we did. So when we retell the story, at this time when I tell the story, it's not a story of pain or frustration or despair, but a story of hope, of healing, of forgiveness, and of faithfulness. And we don't take the suffering out of it to be able to tell it a story that we made it through, or a story where we're able to give somebody else hope that they can make it through what they're doing too, because God is absolutely in the business of causing these things to work together, and he's absolutely in the business of tying it all up. Those are the stories that move us. You see, part of what we're doing on this journey is learning to suffer well. suffer well and the best definition I've heard of suffering is not being in control it's the most concise definition for suffering I can give you not being in control every time you're not in control it's suffering And you say right now well, I don't think that's really suffering come find me when you're out, of not in control and then let me ask you what it feels like it says in 2 Timothy that if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. There's a measure where as we, as we encounter these things and come through them, we actually do gain a different perspective and authority and awareness that says, and it, it should be more than just a momentary intervention. God never wants our walk with him just to be sprinkled with momentary interventions from the divine every encounter and every miracle and every incident to be a way we greater can see his nature not that just that, that in that moment god intervened and so now that need isn't there but now i have a different perspective of his nature it's a reminder of how good he really is every time and i can tell you the difference if it doesn't change your perspective or empower you to see to see that scenario differently the next time it was a momentary intervention if when i don't have enough money to pay my rent this time and god miraculously supplies and the rent gets paid and then the next time i don't have money to pay the rent i freak out and say everything's going to be horrible and i'm in fear and i'm in anxiety i'm in worry and, and i don't trust god that last time was a momentary intervention it wasn't a new awareness of his nature should change our perspective. If not, it's just help for the moment. And he doesn't do things for that. How do we allow our egocentric self-control to die? As Paul said daily, there's only one way. Suffering. You losing control... Not being in control in whatever, whatever way, shape, or form is the only way that the ego self dies. And so in the midst of moments where we're not in control, that is suffering because the point of suffering is the ego self who, uh, who I try to put on airs to be dies so that life can really come. And then as that happens, we embrace what Richard Rohr calls the true self, our identity in God as we are created. What Paul says is that God is up to something in the entire world. He's always been up to something since the beginning. The beauty and goodness of what God is doing and has always been doing is that he keeps anicasteoing the whole thing. Every time there's a mess, every time there's a challenge, every time there's a difficulty, he, whether in our life or in the world at large, in the whole story of humanity. He keeps changing and summing up, bringing together, causing a new perspective to be given. That's what he does, and that's what he's always been doing. He never got worried when we messed it up. Why? Because he's like, perfect. My job description is make beauty from messes. Jesus wasn't a knee jerk. It wasn't, oh no, I don't i'll just have to send jesus to fix this stuff it was god saying my specialty is working in the midst of this and summing up causing a different perspective once again another definition of this word is to tell the story a different way it's not getting rid of the hard stuff or the difficult moments it's just seeing that there is something bigger happening and we Opportunity to tell the story from that perspective, and to me, that is what makes this gospel beautiful. That's what makes our hard lives, our painful lives, and our suffering beautiful, and and full of who He is. Because in the midst of that, He is doing it. Now, the last thing I'd like to say is that there is this thing. Um, there's really a deeper level of this, and we don't have time to really get into it. But I would say. I think there's a level of maturity that he would like us to come to where the time between when we experience the suffering and when we can see it and, and embrace it as part of the journey in joy, where the space between those two gets shorter and shorter. for me to look back on what I encountered five years ago that was hell on earth and and laugh about it and tell the story and realize that now it's part of what got me here. But maturity is that gap getting closer and closer together to where in the midst of that moment, how can I give thanks to him and be in joy that even in the midst of this pain, I'm not discounting the pain, but in the midst of that pain, it's part of my story. In the midst of that pain, God is summing it all up because that's what he does to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring all things into unity. That's what God does. That's a beautiful gospel. That's a gospel where we don't have to feel like that when things are going really well, it must mean God's happy with us. And when things are going really bad, it must mean there's sin in our life. is where you can can look at the difficulty and not blame God for it. Because there's two ways, as I grew up as an evangelical Protestant Christian young man, I grew up thinking there was two ways to interpret difficulty. One, God did it. God caused the pain. Or two, the pain is because I was going against God. There's only two ways. Either God caused it, or I'm wrong, Me. Both of those are wrong. It's just that simple. Both of those are wrong. Because the non dualistic perspective can look at the journey and say, How do I embrace the suffering and the rejoicing? How do I, as as the scripture says multiple times, how do I weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice? How do I know how to be both? That's who we are. And that's the beautiful gospel of Jesus that we can saying, oh, man, he didn't have any place to lay his head, so I guess I have to be homeless. I've actually heard people that it's almost like they try to make their life harder because they feel like the harder their life is, the more holy their life is. You've been around those people? They wouldn't smile if you, if you paid them $1,000. And then I've also been with people that as, as soon as life gets hard, they lose faith that God is with him through that, and and I would encourage you, the question I've tried to start asking myself is, okay, this person did something to me, and it really wounded me. What did it illuminate in me that needs to be developed? I'm not saying they weren't wrong. I'm not condoning their evil or their wrongdoing. But what I'm saying is, I can't fix that should be a highlighting of something in me in this process where he wants to develop that thing so that my ego can be put back in place so in that moment we divide soul and spirit and we say god what is it in me you want to develop i can't fix them what in me and in that way he's bringing all things together he is the one who sums it up amen that's a beautiful gospel You all, Um, we're gonna pray and and dismiss. Thank you all so much for being here today. Sorry, we're a little, a little tardy in our completion. Thank you, kids. You guys were amazing. Can we give the kids a hand clap of appreciation? You guys were great, like the best ever. Oh my goodness! And you guys didn't even get to come with like a Tonka truck in your pocket to play with or something like I did when I was a kid, because we'd be at church for six hours. Um, So. Father, we thank you. We love you. You're so good to us. Help us to embrace and help us to welcome and help us to walk in everything you're doing, knowing that you are summing all things up. Your perspective is our perspective. We don't have to fear the suffering. We don't have to fear the difficulty. We don't have to fear the pain. But we know that you're walking with us through those things, and there's things that you're working out in us in the process. Help us to embrace the process. Help us to embrace the journey. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.org.